The COVID death toll has jumped fivefold in less than a week. The disease has infected, even killed, people we know and love. Doctors, nurses, and hospital staff are doing battle on the front lines, while the hospitals they're working in struggle to supply them with personal protective equipment and ventilators. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. My mother-in-law had to call the local Costco to figure out when they get their toilet paper shipments to finally get some damn TP. But why? Because people aren't their best selves during a pandemic. Some parts fear, some parts anxiety, and some parts boredom are conspiring against us. But some people see this as an opportunity. Like this guy who bought up all the hand sanitizer so he could price gouge people when they needed it most. For Matt Colvin, a pandemic meant an opportunity. After the first COVID-19 death in the United States, Colvin went state to state clearing out sanitizer shelves. He now sits with 18,000 unused bottles in his home and storage unit. Colvin bought the sanitizer with the intention of selling them for profit on Amazon. He told the New York Times in a recent interview that some items were listed at $70 a bottle. Um, the pricing on Amazon was higher than, was definitely higher than retail. Would you say you're sorry? Sorry for purchasing, if, sorry for buying all of this. No, I don't think that I would. Punk. That's awful. But what if you were a corporation with far more power and money than some dude in his minivan? Later this episode, we'll talk to Naomi Klein about disaster capitalism, how corporations take advantage of crisis to consolidate power in times like this. But it's one thing when there's not enough toilet paper. It's another when there's not enough health care. On Tuesday, we spoke with Dr. Akash Shah about the challenges of being a doctor on the front lines of COVID. It is as challenging as it gets. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to emphasize is that if you are fortunate enough to be in a part of the country where this hasn't hit you in earnest, brace yourself. While people aren't hoarding health care per se, COVID-19 spread has placed a huge strain on the limitations of our health care system, a system that wasn't particularly well equipped to begin with. In fact, FEMA is now setting up makeshift overflow hospitals in convention centers all over the country, like Chicago, Detroit, and New York. In fact, in New York, in the city hardest hit, field hospitals are being set up at the Javits Center, the U.S. Open Tennis Complex, and in Central Park. While COVID is a unique situation, it does force us to ask, why wasn't our healthcare system prepared for something like this in the first place? Well, because in America, the healthcare system isn't exactly about providing us health care. It's about making money. In America, hospitals are businesses with consultants. And no matter the business, management consultants will always tell you to trim your overhead, those costs of doing business that are fixed. So hospitals are coached to operate as close to capacity as possible and to reduce excess supplies. That's excess overhead. That may be great advice if you're trying to maximize a profit margin. It is terrible advice when you're responding to a global pandemic. When you have emergency rooms flooded with patients, it makes it harder for us to attend to all of the other issues. So if you come in with a heart attack, we're going to be slower taking care of you, and we're going to be sloppier with our own infection control if we're overwhelmed. Second, if you're a business, you want to maximize profits. Then that doesn't necessarily mean selling more goods, but it does mean selling more of the goods with the highest profit margin, the most income relative to cost. For hospitals, that means maximizing lucrative elective procedures knee surgeries, hip replacements, nose jobs. But if you're about to get hit by a major pandemic, especially when you've already eliminated your reserve capacity, 
you have to cancel those procedures to meet the demand. Canceling elective procedures means canceling the hospital's financial lifeline. So right when you're preparing for a major pandemic, you're facing bankruptcy too. That's the case for many hospitals across the country. In fact, in Washington, one of the state's hardest hit by COVID, 13 rural hospitals reported having less than 45 days cash on hand. Five were at risk of imminent closure, as reported by the LA Times. Because they've cut their reserve and because COVID has been, well, a pandemic, our hospitals have had to lean on the national strategic stockpile, the federal government's pantry of extra things we might need in an emergency. It's got everything you might need in a pandemic, like medication, personal protective equipment, and ventilators. It's like the medical version of the room at the end of the tunnel in Indiana Jones. Except someone forgot to stock it with ventilators. Well, actually, the folks who were supposed to stock it just didn't think there was enough money in it, so they didn't. I'll tell you the story. In 2012, the federal government contracted with a small medical technology company to build a low-cost ventilator prototype to build out the federal stockpile. But after receiving some of the payment, the company was bought by a far larger medical device company that no longer found manufacturing these devices profitable. Get this? That bigger company's name was Covidian. You can't make this stuff up. Covidian canceled the contract. The ventilators were never built. And here we are, low on stock, even in the reserve. Those ventilators would have been clutch right about now. All of these are symptoms of a much bigger problem, a philosophy that our country has operated on for the past 40 years, that the free market can make anything better, whether it's healthcare or utilities or education. But if this moment's teaching us anything, it's that sometimes markets and the corporations that drive them can't do anything better. You just need government to do what it does best, our guest today is Naomi Klein. She's been writing about how major corporations have worked through government in times of crisis to consolidate their power and wealth. She joins us today to talk about disaster capitalism and how major corporations exploit our fears during a crisis and how that could be happening right now, after the break. Friends, this podcast is all about this pandemic. But for a long view, I hope that you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. I diagnosed an epidemic of insecurity that I believe set the stage for this moment right now. I hope that you'll check it out at HealingPoliticsBook.com. Naomi Klein is an award-winning journalist and New York Times bestselling author of seven critically acclaimed books published in over 30 languages, most recently On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. She is senior correspondent for The Intercept, a Puffin Writing Fellow at Type Media Center, and is the inaugural Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair in Media, Culture, and Feminist Studies at Rutgers University. Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Really happy to be with you. Your work um, has extensively chronicled the way that our uh, corporate economic system and, frankly, neoliberalism has created the space wherein we're uniquely vulnerable to disaster and that those disasters have maximal consequences for people and minimal consequences for uh, industry. Um, you, you lay out this idea of disaster capitalism in your book, Shock Doctrine. What does what does the disaster capitalism mean, and how does it apply now? Disaster capitalism was a phrase that I started using to describe the for-profit industry that emerged in the wakes of large-scale shocks, right? So mm. not just... Um, the surveillance economy, but the privatized surveillance economy after 9-11, right? Because it was mm. it was sort of rolled out and simultaneously privatized. But more than that, you know, when I when I talk about the shock doctrine, I'm talking about a, a strategy of exploiting 
of exploiting these shocks and crises in order to push through that wish list. It, it, yeah. It's a reference to a tactic that we yeah. see again and repeat again and again of, of taking advantage of people's fear and dislocation and the feeling of just do something, do anything to make the pain stop, right? And we certainly are seeing this in the context of the calls to revive and rescue the U.S. economy. Just do something and we'll worry about what that something is down the road. And it's in that window of panic that that there, I think, is a very high level of understanding that that's when you can get away with murder. So, you know, a lot of us right now um, are watching uh, as the powers that be make decisions about how to respond. And um, the fault line of the debate really is about whether or not we are going to put resources uh, in the form of, you know, direct cash payments in the pockets of workers and maybe small businesses or if we're going to try and do this from a top-down approach. And um, can you speak to how this conversation's played out now um, to help us understand, A, how our thinking has changed and maybe if we've learned a lesson from the past, and B, um, what the potential dangers are of, of doing this the wrong way? Well, I think the potential dangers of doing it the wrong way is that um, the window where it becomes clear that all of the claims of, you know, how will we pay for it, of just the sort of impotent state that just is not able to solve problems, um, the window where all of that falls away and we in fact see that it is possible, um, this window will close. And if we don't make the most of this window, then we will mm. be told that there are there's no money to pay to deal with the many other emergencies we face. Mm-hmm. So... What we need to be doing in this moment is we need to be solving multiple crises at once. And the kinds of policies that we fight for in this period, yes, have to put, they have to put people first, they have to put planet first, um, and they have to get us somewhere better than where we were when we started. Um, because where we were when we started <laughs> was a crisis. Um, So if we need to stimulate the economy, let us stimulate the economy in a way that is going to make us less crisis prone. You know, it's striking and I think worth remembering. You know, people talk about when are we going to return to normal, right? And I think it is worth remembering that just a few months ago, Australia was on fire. The continent was on fire. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. Um, mm-hmm. And just a month, a few months before that, the Amazon was on fire. None of this is normal. And so we do not want to return to that abnormal. We need to solve multiple crises in the way we respond. So to come back right. to your question of what we have learned, what I find most heartening about this moment is that people are putting forward much bolder visions for what kind of economic stimulus we want. And I would say we are in a much better position than we were in 2008, because in 2008, there really weren't robust social movements that had articulated platforms about what we want the next economy to look like, right? right. We, We have spent 
the pat the intervening years between these crises developing those platforms and one of those platforms now goes under the name of a green new deal and it is modeled after the greatest economic stimulus of all time which was the original new deal and it learns from the failures and the systemic exclusions of the original New Deal, of the fact that it left out so many African-American workers, so many women workers, so many immigrants. And it, and it is very deliberate in ensuring that those workers are included. And so, you know, in, to, be, to be frank with you, in, in 2008 and 2009, we did not have our plan for what we wanted instead. I want to bring us back to this crisis. Um, you know, one of the interesting, uh, one of the interesting experiences that I think everybody's gone through um, as we've come to the reality of this is is just the fact that like basic things. I don't know why, but toilet paper is one of them. But also hand sanitizer and uh, other basic necessities. You see people uh, hoarding them, and you can't find them almost anywhere. I know my my mother in law had to call Costco. Um, to make sure that they had toilet paper and then send somebody out to go get it because we were running short. And I wonder, you know, how much does this reveal about human nature? And is this just, you know, the, when you talk about the shock doctrine, is this just the corporate version of what scared people do? Um, or is there something more, uh, more sinister in the ways that corporations do it? And, you know, how do we communicate to each other about, about our collective well-being in a moment when all of us are facing a crisis? So I think it's important to understand that we are weathering this crisis a half century into the neoliberal project, right? Mm. Um, and our societies are profoundly neoliberal. Um, Milton Friedman won this battle of ideas. Um, and so I think previous generations weathered crises differently because they were living within structures that seemed more rational in, in terms of the allocation of resources. So, you know, we now have generations of people that have told us in no uncertain terms that we are on our own, that it is up to us uh, and us alone to make sure that our families um, have health care, that they have, that they are housed, um, that, you know, that, that nobody is going to look after us. This is what it, this is what this hyper individualist uh, culture creates. And so I don't see why we should expect people not to hoard to toilet paper or not to mm. act as if they are completely on their own in a crisis when this is uh, all of the messages of the society that they're living in have reinforced that. So we are suddenly expecting people who have been um, have spent their entire life in a hyper individualist culture where where they told again and again that nobody is going to help them. Um, we are expecting them to act collectively, but I don't think that we should be surprised that people are having trouble thinking collectively because we because that muscle has atrophied. You you described it as human nature. I think humans are complicated. I think mm. we have um, we have that hoarding instinct. Um, that's part of being human. Um, but we but but part of being human is also cooperating and and being social and thinking about the broader group because humans have survived in groups, not as individuals throughout our long history. Um, and different social systems light up different parts of our humanity. Um, so we have that that hyper individualist hoarding 
um, um, short-term thinking part of ourselves. We also have the collectivist, compassionate, long-term thinking part of ourselves. And when we make choices like whether or not we are going to provide for the basics in society and say everybody is going to have health care, everybody is going to have housing, everybody is going to have clean water, we're putting in a floor, right, that says to people that hoarding part of yourself, that panic type of individualist part, part of yourself, it doesn't need to be in high gear all the time. You can light up the part of yourself that cares about your broader community, which is also human, right? So we really are making choices. I think when we talk about what kind of systems we want to build, what kind of systems, uh, what kind of society we want to live in, that's what they're about. They're about what part of being human we're going to support and light up. And that matters a lot because this is not the last shock we're going to face together. I love that idea. I, the, the, the notion that, um, that you know, the, the aspects of human nature that uh, that get played up um, based on the system in which we live and what we're taught to value, um, I think rings so true. You know, in, in so many ways, you know, part of the challenge with the, the kind of corporate capitalism that we live in right now is that um, there are winners and there are losers. And you're taught that if you're not a winner, you're going to be a loser and no one wants to be a loser. And so when it comes to walking down the aisle and seeing some toilet paper that you don't even need, you're like, well, look, if there are winners and losers, I got to win and uh, I'm going to buy I've this got, toilet paper. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you're not just trying to win for you. Chances are you're trying to win for your whole family, right? Um, because you, it's up to you just to, to care for your n- nuclear family. So often what looks like individual selfishness is act maybe somebody being altruistic for their broader family. And and you you see that around healthcare all the time, you know, people taking right. jobs that they have ethical problems with because that is the way that they live up to their moral responsibility to care for their family. And we we force these impossible these impossible choices onto people all the time. Um and and, and yeah, I think I think we're complicated. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate your um, perspective on this. It's really helpful for us to appreciate that, you know, history does repeat itself. Um, you know, we haven't dealt with a pandemic like this, at least not in our lifetimes, but uh, there are other analogs that humanity has suffered and um, we see the choices that we get to make. I, I want to ask you personally, you know, what gives you hope right now? You know, I I feel like there has been a evolution, a, a kind of a punctuated leap uh, since the last time we have faced one of these crises. And, and I think it has to do with the fact that there's a generation of, of young people who came of age uh, in the midst or in the immediate aftermath of the the global financial crisis, and they learned a lot from it. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like they have a really, really healthy distrust of elites uh, and 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 the 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 elites that got us into this mess, but I think one of the things that gives me a lot of hope and that moves me a great deal is I see a lot of young people expressing so much love for their elders um, and wanting to protect their grandparents and 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 the older people in their lives, and and so much outrage at the idea. You know, there's these more and more we're hearing like. Well, why should we shut down the economy just to save some old people or some sick people, right? Um, and <laughs> and and I see so many young, healthy people just being so deeply outraged by that. And that, that to me is really beautiful because a lot of the way that climate debate has played out has really played up this generational warfare aspect of it, 
like what, you know, it's about baby boomers having, having betrayed Gen Zers. And, you know, there is some truth to that, but I've always had trouble with it because I think that it, when we talk about generations, we're not talking about systems, you know, we're not talking about those systems that, 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 that are much more to blame for, for the, for the, for the roots we have taken. Um, and so I, I guess I, I have this, this hope that the way in which young people are standing up for their elders right now could translate into their elders standing up for them more um, in the years to come and, and fighting for a Green New Deal um, and fighting for Medicare for All and fighting for an end to student debt and free college and all of the things that this generation needs in order to thrive in the future. That's really beautiful. I um, I really appreciate that. And I find a lot of hope in the activism, joy, perspective and love of of young people as well, because I think, you know, it's it's their choices. And um, like you talked about, the parts that they light up in themselves that are going to dictate the future that that we leave behind. So I'm really grateful to you, Naomi, for making some time with us. We're wishing you and your family safety and good health, uh, your ideas in this moment. And um, and I hope that we can connect again soon. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Abdul. Thank you for everything you're doing to educate the public. Your voice is needed so much right now. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. Makeshift field hospitals are being built all over the country. Can they be built fast enough? Rural communities are starting to get their first cases of COVID-19, but they may be even less prepared than major cities were for the oncoming pandemic. Can they learn the lessons from major cities and protect their communities in time? Lastly, I want to hear about your quarantine. Email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com. That's all for today. But if you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. I'll see you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Taki Asuzawa and Alex Ruggiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>